I'm Kevin Barrett, and you're listening to Truth Jihad Radio. No commercials, no foundation sponsors, 100% crowdfunded since 2010. If you want to support this kind of radio and get early access to the shows, please go to kevinbarrett.substack.com. Welcome back. This is the second hour of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, bringing on people who have uh, interesting things to say that the corporate media will not attend to, or if it does, it will merely ridicule or distort. Uh, You just heard some amazing stuff from Reagan Bush White House whistleblower Barbara Honiger in the first hour. Moving on the second hour, our scheduled guest is R. Michael Fisher the founder of Fearlessness Studies, at least I I would call him that. I'm not sure if he's actually been uh, formally given that title. He's written a number of books on the world's fearlessness teachings and uh, various aspects of how to get beyond fear, which is, of course, very relevant for this particular show and the topics that we deal with. We're going to talk about Marianne Williamson. So, hey, uh, Michael, how are you? Hi, good, good day. I'm doing really good here, Kevin. All right, good to have you. Now, now, Michael, I'm. Uh, I had some technical glitches in the first hour, so I wasn't able to bring on Peter Myers from Australia, and yeah. he wants to do ten minutes talking about his new article, uh, solving the mystery of the disappearance of Malaysian airliner MH370. So, would, can you h- hang in there for ten minutes while Peter gives us his succinct summary? No problem at all. Okay, and it's it's a pretty fearless uh, <laughs> summary. So take it away, uh, Peter. Yeah, well, recently there was a Netflix documentary about MH370, which disparaged Blaine Gibson, the wreck hunter. He's an American lawyer. He He's done more than anyone else to find the wreckage of MH370, and it's over around Mauritius, Madagascar, and Mozambique. And the usual explanation is that it went down along the seventh arc and that it floated all the way across the Indian Ocean. But um, Tim Clark, who was the CEO, I think he still is, CEO of Emirates Airlines, who flies more Boeing 777s than any other airline, he was interviewed with Der Spiegel in 2014 and he said he thought it had been hijacked and that uh, that the media was and the and the and the official search was trying to bury the whole thing, and that's pretty much still the case now. And he also said that when a a plane goes down, there's there's always a debris field, but there was no debris found in the uh, seventh arc area. That's where everybody was looking. Went okay. over in. Uh, the Western Indian Ocean, and and that the CIA had some sort of involvement, and they seem to be trying to stop us from looking there. So, for example, they spent two hundred million dollars on searches along the seventh arc, and they refused to spend ten or twenty thousand dollars sending investigators over to the Maldives, where people reported seeing uh, a plane matching MH370 that just soon after it went missing. Blaine Gibson did interview um, those people. He, he took the trouble as a private investigator. He, he took the trouble to do it, but all the official people refused to, to 
to do that because they said, oh, well, we know the InMarsat satellite data is correct, but Atlantic Monthly published an article in 2014, and you can find that at my um, web article that Kevin will introduce, and, and, and they had some satellite experts in there reporting uh, problems with the mathematics of the InMarsat claims, and their conclusion was to say that uh, that, that uh, the path the plane fell at went is a seventh arc is mainly a matter of deferring to government authority, not science. So that's what they were saying. And then there's some other science that's come along, and that is acoustic data from three hydrophones at Diego Garcia, and they monitor nuclear tests. Well, the three of them had a shutdown for 25 minutes, uh, which is unprecedented and unexplained. And I've looked at the times uh, for MHC70 and they match. So it looks to me as if the shutdown occurred when MH370 was being dumped in the ocean and they didn't want any signature there. So the two explanations in terms of the plane going west, one is that it flew direct to Diego Garcia and the other is that it uh, flew to uh, the Maldives uh, where it must have uh, landed and been refueled. Uh, and uh, and then took off again and was sighted uh, at a, a southern um, atoll of the Maldives, Kuda Huvadu, uh, at at uh, times uh, which matched the whole thing. And then from there, if it went, it, it, what would have happened if if it did land in the Maldives? And let's assume this is a CIA hijacking to to take cargo or passengers off that were headed to China and it wanted to intercept. They would have been removed at Mali Airport or Mamagili, one of two airports in the Maldives that it could have landed at. And uh, and and it would have been dark. There were no um, arrivals or departures scheduled at Mali at that time because we've got the boards. We've got the flight boards for it. Blaine Gibson got them. And um, uh, so... Those people would have been taken off, and then if uh, MH370 would then have been flown towards Diego Garcia, but would not have landed there because it would have been daylight by that time. And uh, some people, if it did actually fly direct to Diego Garcia instead of going via the Maldives, in other words, if those eyewitness accounts were wrong for some reason, um, it could have, uh, it, it, it would have had some time during the darkness to unload uh, passengers and goods and have taken off before daylight. And it would have had to taken off before daylight because it couldn't fit into any hangar on Diego Garcia because they're military hangars and they're not high enough for the tail of a Boeing 777. So they definitely wouldn't have had it there in daylight hours. So either it flew direct there and took off before uh, sunrise, and I've got all the times of the sunrise, and etc., in this article. I looked them up years ago, uh, and I've given you the web places, pages where I got the times from, too. Um, so, either it flew directly to Garcia, and uh, stuff was taken off, and then it took off um, before 
sunrise and headed south towards Mauritius reunion and was dumped in the ocean. Or he flew to the Maldives, uh, refueled, uh, passengers and cargo were taken off and they would have been headed to Diagossi either with a small plane uh, or a boat and wouldn't have attracted attention. And then the MH370 would have taken off and been sighted over the southern Maldives and then headed to over near, near Diego Garcia, but not landed because of daylight, and been dumped in the ocean. And if you look at the acoustic data uh, from a scientist in, in London, um, where these hydrophones were turned off, the, there's evidence presented there. It's a reasonably good case, uh, and it shows where, the direction of the plane as well. Well, you might say, yes, it's not as total proof. Well, of course, it's not a total proof because we haven't found the plane. But the point is they don't want us to find the plane because that's why they're keeping everyone uh, oriented to the seventh arc. And I liken that to the the um, broken wing display of a bird, a wild bird that's trying to stop a predator uh, getting to its nest. So it, it mounts this display pretending to be injured and it makes it look as if it's going to be an easy catch so the predator chases it and goes away from the nest well that's what they're doing the nest in this case is over in the western indian ocean they don't want to search there the that's why they're they've been death death threats against against blaine gibson he's been in hiding for six years now and uh that's why he's disparaged in the recent uh, Netflix documentary, uh, because what he, he's actually found a number of pieces of wreckage himself over there. But the other thing he did was there were locals in those places who were finding this wreckage and they were using it for stuff uh, innocently. And he got onto the media over there and explained to them what this was all about, what these pieces of wreckage were about. And that's why there have been more than 30 pieces collated now uh, of of uh, MH370 and why would you go and disparage a man who's devoted years of his pr own life and money to, to track this down when the authorities haven't wanted to and he even interviewed the people, eyewitnesses in the Maldives and the authorities and the media couldn't be bothered to do that either and then why would you disparage him you see and so you, when you connect the dots uh, you can see that there's a good case for saying that they don't want us to find this plane. We don't know exactly what was on it or who, but if we could find the plane, there would be a lot of questions answered then, uh, and it would raise more, and they just don't want that. So, so briefly, Peter, before we let you go and get on with the Fearlessness and Marianne Williamson discussion, what about the motive for this? You speculate in your article, which is uh, headlined MH370 solved the CIA and the broken wing display which I've posted I posted the first part of it with a link to the full article at Veterans Today and there's also a link here on my radio page which people can find by going to truthjihad.com and then clicking on the radio link so that's a it's a wonderful article you speculate that the motive for uh, the CIA kidnapping this airliner would have been to prevent technology transfer to China What's the evidence for that? Well, there were 23 scale, that's Motorola, engineers on the plane. And there was a secret cargo 
uh, 89 kilograms added to the flight minutes. Uh, added, I, I believe the flight manifest has never been published, but one of the people who lost his family found out, uh, uh, and the details are on this web article too, that a, a secret piece of cargo was added uh, to the manifest after the plane left. So we don't know exactly what that is. And then you, you, I better mention pilot suicide. The point is that if either of these pilots wanted to suicide, why would you fly five hours as per the official fee? Five hours in order to suicide. Why not get it over with in half an hour? I mean, that is ridiculous. And the media, the media who, who keep touting this pilot suicide thing, they fail to ask certain questions of the media, like how come military radar at Singapore and any and the U.S. radars which cover the, the Straits of Malacca, you know, a bottleneck, a choke point, uh, and and Diego Casilla. How come none of them picked up this plane? I mean, they have over the horizon radar, and they didn't submit anything at all to the search. The no U.S. government department did. The FBI and so on. It's a dog and, that didn't um, bark. They didn't. They didn't submit. They didn't help at all. They would have had a lot of military data from their radar stations, and 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 basically because this is ostensibly a civilian matter, they they just didn't offer any of it up. So basically, the theory is that this plane was was flown as a drone, and um, and uh, and that uh, I did an interview with Phil McConnell. Who was a, a, a 747 captain and an F-16 fighter pilot as well, and he said that Boeing and Thales both have patents on uninterruptible um, autopilot, I think it's called, and that is technology for flying these planes remotely. And all modern planes can be done; they will all be flown as a drone, and 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 that would include turning off the transponders and things like that. They don't have to have someone going down there to switch it off. It'll all be done remotely by, with the same technology that hijacks the plane and flies it as a drone. And, Peter, I'm sure you know that Dan Hanley, who's also worked with Field McConnell, has done a lot of work on the uninterruptible autopilot uh, being employed uh, for remote hijackings on 9-11. But that's another topic because it's probably time to uh, get on with our scheduled second-hour guest, R. Michael Fisher. Um, Mm. And people, this is a great article, though, Peter, and it's really necessary. In the past, your video that you made with me uh, on this show years ago, uh, it's called, what is it, uh, MH370 Mystery Solved. It accumulated 81,000 views on YouTube, and then they nuked my channel. So I put it on Rumble today, and I also provided links to your new article, MH370 Solved, the CIA and the Broken Wing Display. And again, people can go to truthjihad.com, click on the radio link, and get the full story. So great work, Peter. I think you've pretty much cracked the case. At least this is a better interpretation of the evidence than any other I've seen. So good work. Thank you. And I am looking for any feedback that people would like to send me. Okay. And they can do that by contacting you at Peter at mailstar that's m-a-i-l-s-t-a-r dot net all right thanks peter take care yep bye-bye that's peter myers a australian researcher 
great new information on MH370. At least some of it's new. Um, but the world hasn't caught up to the part that isn't new either. So anyway, let's get on with a fearlessness topic with uh, our Michael Fisher. Well, Michael, you think Peter has to be fairly fearless to be taking on the CIA in uh, looking for what happened to MH370? Yeah, for sure, of course. So, you know, at some level, um, you can see that anytime we are bringing secret, you know, or knowledge that's being disqualified or uh, marginalized, you know, that we do have to bring together our bravery, our courage, and, you know, in the potentials of even perhaps, you know, sacrificing some parts of our life. Uh, and you can call that uh, spirit of fearlessness, as I like to call it. Uh, you can just call it bravery, whatever you like, but uh, it's certainly a moral courage, uh, just on more common terms. You know, pe- people sort of make fun of these new academic disciplines, like in the in the movie White Noise, uh, based on the novel by Dan DeLillo. The protagonist is a professor of Hitler studies. In fact, he's the founder of the entire field of Hitler studies. And of course, that's a parody of this tendency to come up with these new uh, offbeat areas. But frankly, Michael, I think fearlessness studies is one that really would help the academy if, if there were departments of fearlessness studies. Um, frankly, my job at the University of Wisconsin in 2004 through 2006, uh, trying to get their attention about 9-11, would have been a lot easier if there was a fearlessness department to talk to, but unfortunately there wasn't. Well, let me just clarify. I, I like the, the analogy. of Certainly, I come out of academia, too, and I was doing my Ph.D., uh, in 2000 and wrote my exams uh, in 2001, uh, four days before 9-11, and handed in my comp exams. And <laughs> no. the topic of my comp exams was the culture of fear in education. Oh, no. <laughs> education fact, the 9-11 hit four days later. Man. And I thought, oh boy, this is going to be really great for my, you know, career and horrible for the, a lot of the world. But you know, I was sort of another part of me was smiling, right? It's like this has been my research for 20 years, and I can't wait to. Well, it turns out that you know the academy and education faculties were not very interested in pursuing fear or listening to me either very long. But I, I just wanted to be clear that in 2006 I did publish my first academic article in a journal of curriculum theorizing a very you know respected tier journal in education and it was actually on fear studies so my area is fear studies and fearlessness is definitely the sort of dialectical component right I basically was arguing that if you're going to start study fear let's also study fearlessness at the same time now somebody might say well why don't you just study courage you're encouraged or something like that. And I said, well, the literature shows me when I actually searched around the world that fearlessness is a way more interesting than just courage. It's a lot deeper. It goes back into religious and wisdom traditions. Courage does too. But, you know, back to the Bhagavad Gita, for example, um, fearlessness is actually talked about as the virtue of all virtues. And in that passage, it was basically, I'm paraphrasing, if fearlessness isn't put properly in place in the virtues sort of syndrome or the you know hierarchy, all the other virtues will collapse without fearlessness at its base. I think Mahatma Gandhi obviously adapted that for his peace activist Satagriya movement, and others have used fearlessness. But what I also noticed is that, for example, when you look in the you know the Abrahamic tradition literatures. Again, as a scholar, I'm going, who's using this term fearlessness? How are they using it? How are they using it related to fear? 
I, I found in the Abrahamic traditions, they don't like to use the word fearlessness. Now that, in more popular Christian and other um, websites, you'll start to see them using fearlessness now. I'm at the point where too many people use fearlessness, but not carefully enough. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, from the Islamic perspective, we would say that this, even though there isn't really a word fearlessness that shows up in, in Quran, I don't know about the other literature, uh, but the idea, I think, is is there, especially in the whole career of uh, the Prophet, peace upon him, and all the other prophets as well, that the basic notion of prophecy, as we get it in the Quran, is very much related to uh, the fearlessness of these people who have a kind of a divine dispensation and who break with the uh, hypocrisy and oppression of the leaders of their society and then stand by their vision even at great risk to themselves. I mean, this this is the same pattern, this kind of archetypal pattern over and over with all of the prophets that's presented in in Quran. So I think that the idea is there, even if the word isn't. I think I agree, you know, the prophetic tradition, and certainly, you know, be not afraid uh, is apparently class, you know, somebody's actually counted. It it occurs more times than any other phrase in the Bible, for example. Mm -hmm. So... Um, let's go to world leaders now, because once I was in education, oh, yeah. I said... Yeah, I, I'm sorry, in, in, in the Quran, they, they fear not and neither shall they grieve. All right, those are the, the people who are on the path to paradise. Very good. Yeah, so then when in, you're in education, I'm looking at who are the leaders that are going to be capable, not only in the field of education, but obviously society as a whole, and in our cultures. And so I've been kind of following world leaders, obviously, at different times. And that's where Marion Williamson came on my radar, you know, back in the early 90s when I actually started the Fearlessness Project, uh, just as an independent, you know, uh, researcher and public educator myself. So I'm an adult educator by trade. And yeah, she came on and she was writing some interesting books. And her book, Healing of America, was a pretty 1997, right? And I'm going, what? Who's who's standing up and saying the healing of America? That's a pretty powerful, prophetic kind of voice. And so that's kind of where it started, uh, my inquiry into her. And so if you have any other questions about anything that you think you learned about Marianne or anything, just fire away. Well, uh, sure. And, and one quick uh, note is, I guess there's a there's a little bit of a sound distortion uh, that sounds like it could be uh, something, you know, bumping a microphone or something. So, if you could uh, just, uh, if there's any way to fix that, that would be great. It's not too bad. But yeah, I'll so Mary, the, sorry. Yeah, I'm going to hold the phone, but I hope my battery doesn't go dead on you. Oh <laughs> yeah. That's that's the the era of phones has really not necessarily been such a gift to our uh, live radio show here. <laughs> in any case, yeah, Marianne Williamson, it you know caught caught my attention too with her openness to nine eleven truth, and I actually had her on the show, and she's she was remarkably frank and yes, fearless in uh, talking about that, and then she was willing to listen to my harsh critique of Zionism, which she doesn't share. She was brought up Jewish and American and given the usual brainwashing, and so that was kind of uh, the kind of thing that a lot of people would have a hard time with, but she was willing to listen to it and engage reasonably with it, so I have a lot of respect for her. Her work is obviously the work of an intelligent 
thoughtful, curious, open-minded person with, uh, you know, with real spiritual aspirations. So yeah, she's, I think she's, she's great. Uh, and maybe you could talk a little bit more about the specifics of what this healing of America, uh, was about and how that vision has developed since 1997. Uh Oh, I hope, I hope, uh, Michael's phone didn't die. (laughs) Oh no. Oh boy. Well, if he has to go recharge it or something, that might take a while, which would be a lot of dead air. Uh, I'm looking on my board here, and I, I don't see Michael actually in the studio, or shall I say the virtual studio. So it looks like we lost him, and so his unfortunate prognostication of losing his cell phone power seems to have come true. Oh, man, I should I would say, you know, I was afraid of that, except I... You know, we need fearlessness. We shouldn't be afraid of anything, least of all cell phone drop-offs because of dead batteries. So, it's Barbara. Hey, Barbara, you're still there. Yeah, you're I'm fearless enough there. to be hanging I, I around. Maybe we could fill the time with uh, an update on 9-11. Yeah, sure. Well, okay, yeah, because, you know, Michael was just saying that, you know, he, he turned in his, uh, his, you know, his, his big dissertation, you know, putting him into this fear studies or fearlessness studies field a couple of days before 9-11, thinking that, oh, well, now that the whole country is totally controlled by fear, that maybe people will pay attention to this topic. But it turned out <laughs> the world was afraid of fearlessness. They were so afraid that they were afraid to even engage with studying anything having to do with fear or fearlessness. Well, except for, <laughs> except for a few notable exceptions like thou and me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, a few, a few of us were, were crazy enough <laughs> to stop, to not want to live in a world of fear. And I guess we went through pretty much the same thing with COVID, too, didn't we? Yeah, I, I thought what I'd like to do, and then as soon as he comes back, of course, uh, I'll, I'll pop on to... Uh, to mute again. But uh, how about an update on what the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 inquiry is doing? That sounds good. Yeah. What's what's the latest from the Lawyers Committee? All right. Um, well, it's 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 good. What do they say? Uh, it's a fortunately, unfortunately, fortunately story, as you will see. Uh-huh. Uh, we, we have many uh, legal irons in the fire, but our big case and there are many others. Uh, that are in the court system. But our big case was filed in April of 2018. And we've had many shows about that, of course. And that is the World Trade Center Grand Jury Petition. That was filed on uh, April 10th of 2018. And on November 7th of 2018, to our pleasant surprise, we got a formal letter from the uh, from the office of the U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, which is the Manhattan jurisdiction for the World Trade Center events on 9-11, letting us know that he was, that their office, that the U.S. attorney was going to comply with the federal law passed by the Congress of the United States that requires him mandatorily to turn over our uh, petition and our evidentiary exhibits. There were 60 evidentiary exhibits proving the case that the World Trade Center Tower's and World Trade Center 7 were brought down by pre-placed explosives and incendiaries, including military-grade manothermite, as you know. So um, we have gone through the court system all the way to the Supreme Court. And uh, on the on December 5th, I believe it was, just recently, a few months ago, the Supreme Court said, uh, 
we're not going to accept your case, which was expected because they only accept maybe less than one percent of all of the cases that are given to them in any term. Uh, so we expected them not to accept our case and they didn't um, to take it up. But what that means is, is that the decision of the appeals court in the Second Circuit, which is centered in Manhattan, in New York, um, that that appeals court decision stands and that absurd appeals court decision, uh, which only affects the uh, the the uh, the jurisdiction, the, the states in the jurisdiction of the Second Circuit, of course, just one of the circuits of the United States only. Um, but that decision was that, believe it or not, uh, 9-11 uh, victims, family members, including Bob McElvain and the victims, family members, including a survivor of the uh, toxic dust at Ground Zero that included both ex- both unexploded and exploded, uh, both exploded and unexploded nanothermite in the lungs of the survivor, um, that they didn't have standing to sue, as absurd as that is. If the actual survivors and victims, family members of the 9-11 victims at Ground Zero don't have standing to sue, who in God's name does? But that is the decision of the appeals court. So uh, the new news is that a couple of our board meetings ago, and I'm now the chairman of the board of the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry, um, and we have some very exciting new board members, so I would invite your listeners to go to uh, the website, which is LC, which stands for Lawyers Committee. So the website is LC4FOR911.org, LC4911.org, and you will see all of our new filings. Uh, but the latest, uh, even though it's not yet up on the website, we have just decided that we, of course, are not going to give up. So we're going to plan B. And what we're going to do is we are going to file with a judge in New York doesn't doesn't really matter what level, but will probably be a circuit federal circuit court judge. Um, We will file with a judge in New York and ask the judge to personally uh, follow the federal statute because the U.S. attorney refuses to do so um, and ask the judge to personally deliver it to a special criminal grand jury along with our evidentiary exhibits. And the good news is is that, believe it or not, there is precedent, there are previous rulings um, that say that um, a judge, a judge has the authority to do that regardless. But judges have actually done so when the U.S. attorney has refused. So so actually, it's a kind of a uh, making lemonade out of lemons um, of the lemon of the appeals court decision there in Manhattan. So we're not we're not uh, giving up, of course, and that's we're going to be filing that, I would say, in about two weeks. So that's the that's the new the new news, as it were, on our on our biggest case. So, so Barbara, does that mean that any judge in in New York uh, or a group of judges, any one of them could conceivably uh, go ahead and uh, approve this? Well, the ju- any judge has the authority to do so. Okay. So we have not yet chosen the judge. I see. So, but you're going to uh, target it at a particular judge. Well, that research is being done. I see. Interesting. Yeah, because a lot of the times, you know, the kind of feedback I get from people like William Pepper, who is famous for having won that case, 
in which a jury decided that the U.S. government had assassinated Dr. Martin Luther King, uh, that he, he thinks that kind of shopping for your venues is critically important and that he, he actually looked around and did some research and decided not to go with some 9-11 litigation he had been thinking of uh, pursuing because he just couldn't find a venue where it was likely to be successful. And so I'm, I'm wondering how the Lawyers Committee deals with that issue. Well, this is this is a different kind of case, really. Um, there is a federal statute passed by the U.S. Congress that mandates uh, that any evidence of a crime uh, be that a citizen or a group of citizens uh, provide to a U.S. attorney must be given to a grand jury, a criminal grand jury. Uh, and the, the U.S. Attorney's Office, all the, and that was the decision of the appeals court, they went along with the U.S. Attorney, was that, well, you know, we're just not going to tell you what we've done. You can't know. So our backup is simply to go to a judge and to either, number one, uh, get the answer from the U.S. Attorney, and if he finds out that he hasn't done it, order him to do it, make sure he has, or do it himself. This is just, it's an administrative matter. Right. But given the political implications of the case, it would require a courageous, or should I say a fearless judge to to do that. And uh, it might be, you know, obviously I imagine that, that the Lawyers Committee would be researching that to see if there are any judges who could conceivably be that fearless. Well, I don't know the answer to which judge we are going to choose, but we are going to do that. Okay, well, that that's, sounds like good news, and let's hope there's at least one <laughs> fearless yeah. uh, ethical judge uh, in New York. Yeah, you know, the right wing in this country is doing that. There's this judge down in Texas, uh, in Amarillo, Texas, where all of these um, right wing leading cases uh, have been uh, have been court shot to him, because if you go to his court, he's the only judge who hears the case. And they already know how he's going to rule. And he's been ruling right and left uh, uh, for right-wing causes. So, you know, it happens. And Danny Sheehan, I think you just you just quoted Danny Sheehan, I believe. Um, Daniel Sheehan, who is on our advisory board, by the way, our advisory committee for the Lawyers Committee for 9-11 Inquiry. Um, Danny Sheehan, um, the only case in his very important book that everybody should get, It's on Amazon. It's called The People's Advocate. And in that case, uh, world-famous attorney Daniel Sheehan, who's who's a personal friend and colleague of mine here in the Monterey Peninsula of California for 45 years, um, uh, in Danny Sheehan's book, each chapter is one of the amazing cases that he has won. Um, He was an attorney for the New York Times in the Pentagon Papers case. He was an attorney for the family of Karen Silkwood. And he won that case. He was the attorney for uh, the big Iran-Contra case against North uh, and Secord and Hakeem. And what you learn in that book is he's won all of his cases with except for one. And that was the Iran-Contra case. And they weren't going to let him win that case regardless. But in the book and in his interviews about the book after it was published, um, he makes the very important point. But he made a big mistake by not uh, researching which court and which judge to bring that case, because it turns out that Judge King, who was the judge in that case, 
was basically the CIA's fixer judge. And if he'd done a little research first, he would have realized that. Mm. That does uh, bear, bear out the point that uh, if you're going to go to court, you should know whose court you're in. I've definitely known some folks, including my, uh, my friend uh, Jim Fetzer here in Madison, who yeah. have had problems. There's a famous quote. I can't remember. It's, it's so famous. I can't remember who said it. Right. But the quote stuck in my mind. And it's something like, uh, don't tell me what the law is. Tell me who the judge is. Right. Yeah, they, they do kind of uh, rule their courtrooms and have, have big say in what kind of evidence ever gets looked at and even whether anything even goes to court. So, yeah. So so uh, Michael Fisher does say he is available. He has a different phone with the same number. But uh, apparently if Mr. Rowe in the studio is listening, maybe, Mr. Rowe, you can call uh, Michael Fisher at that number that you have. And it should work this time. And well, we maybe, can, he, maybe he's he, charged up his. <laughs> yeah, he's he, well. He says he's standing by. He's he emails me. And he says he's standing by. But uh, hello. Oh, there he is. Hello, Michael. Okay. How are you? Hi. Uh, good. So, so was that your battery that ran out, or or was it the fear police that got you? It was the battery. <laughs> and then I had to run up, upstairs to catch, you know, get the wall phone and. Oh yeah. man. Yeah, this is one of the many reasons why I don't carry a portable tracking device that can also make phone calls. Uh, yeah. I'm last man on earth without a cell phone. Uh, but, yeah, so so we were talking about Marianne Williamson and how in 1997 you uh, looked at her call for the healing of America and were very impressed. And so maybe you can get into some of the details about that, precisely what needs to be healed and how given that, for instance, Trump actually just called for a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And that's a great idea, although, you know, Trump has a way of making a hash out of <laughs> things that he it sounds kind of good when he says it. But in any case, that's a Truth and Reconciliation Commission looking at all these kinds of issues that we talk about in this show probably would be just the ticket. And I'm wondering what Marianne is thinking uh, this healing would entail. Yeah. So certainly back then, I think what I was impressed with is just she had a, a really good understanding of American history. She she overviewed it very carefully, um, went back to the founding fathers and so on and so on. And she was really talking for her healing was a moral transition that was needed. So really, you could just have put in a remoralizing or a revisioning of America. And that would be, of course, for her, a just society and all the good things that go with, you know, what democracy was meant to be and its ideals. Even though, you know, she's very realistic that, you know, history is history. And also she would basically say that America started on the both the best and the worst of human behavior, right? With And she traces that back. She does this in all her talks She's as she's running now for the 2024 campaign, as you know, challenging Biden in New Hampshire. She's still using that rhetoric that, you know, America, we have to understand is it started on the best of this great new constitution of liberation. And at the same time, you know, 80 percent of the the people who signed that constitution originally were were having slaves and the the black problem uh, of American History is a scar that will not go away, and she says that's just the beginning of you know the moral turn, right? That we have to own that. So she comes, remember, out of the field of rehabilitation and counseling background therapy. So she's always looking at 
we're, we're in a sense addicted to our need to dominate, to oppress. And she will start with that kind of theory. And it's like for a leader in American politics to start with an oppression theory of that nature, it's like, I just do not hear that. So as a Canadian, I'm reading and listening to that book. And then I started studying her more and more. And, it, and I always kept saying in the back of my mind, she would be a, an interesting leader to run for president. Well, she tried politics a couple of times. And so what I ended up doing when she finally put her hat in in 2020 for the run for president again, wanted to join the Democratic Party. One of the main critiques, and it certainly started in that 1997 book, but now it's it's really heavy in her policies and in her speeches and talks and interviews, is basically the corruption within the Democratic Party. So she's decided to go as a Dem and you know follow that route, but she's like very, very critical. So she's left of Biden and she's far left of most of the lefts in, in the Democrat Party as well. Not all. And certainly she was a supporter for Bernie in his run and she was an endorser and worked on his campaign in 2016 when he ran. But uh, she's very aware. She's challenging the, the Dems. And I ended up doing a study of basically all, all of that campaign in 2019 as she put her hat in and ran for the 2020 and had to get out early. And I ended up writing a book called The Marianne Williamson Presidential Phenomenon, Cultural Revolution in a Dangerous Time. And so that was published um, in that year. And I was hoping that hopefully the book would get out before the election results came in and people went voting. And I wanted to inform people of amazing kinds of discourses and arguments that were going back and forth between her, her supporters, and, you know, all the different factions of various kinds that would challenge her, right, and couldn't stand her. And, you know, what I'm hearing when you were had her on the show, you know, you were at least respectful of each other and had the kind of dialogue that, you know, felt like it was a really intelligent one. So that's yeah. just kind of updates some of the main things. So she's not afraid to basically use the term, we have a sociopathic economic system. So she's not just going after the Dems, but she's basically saying that the Dems and the DNC have been so co-opted and, you know, and she says this very overtly into a sociopathic economic system. And her goal is to go in and to try and change that in, you know, all the different ways that she's going to attempt to do that. I don't know if you've listened to any of her speeches or interviews in this uh, run at all, Kevin. You know, I, I really haven't much yet, but I, I certainly oh. will. Uh, but so, in turn, I, I basically am on board with her sort of core contention that you know we need a healing, we need a spiritual awakening. That the problems yep. in this country are past the point that just one or two policy fixes is going to change them. There needs to be some sort of great awakening at the spiritual level. And and she's the only person really saying this. So I, I really respect that. In terms of the specific policies, I'm wondering what she is promoting to go along with that in, in terms of, you know, are, are there legal you know, initiatives, uh, passing laws, uh, changing, you know, for instance, I would put shutting down our foreign military bases and bringing the troops home and officially declaring an end to the American empire. To me, that would be the single biggest policy move that would accompany a spiritual awakening. And I'm wondering what kinds of specific ideas yeah, she has. Well, I think that, I think it's good if you just keep saying what you would think would be a good one. And I'll just say, yep, check. She would say that. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think she would actually, wouldn't she? <laughs> she yeah, she, 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 she really seems to would. kind of get that stuff. Yeah. 
I mean, she she's sort of a founder. Like one of the her policies for the BOSA 2020 run and this one is um, she wants a Department of Peace, and uh, that is a to counter you know the the constant absorption and suck sucking of great monies and corporate monies into you know the big military complex. Um, and it's not that she's anti-war. Um, she wouldn't come up that way. She would just say, absolutely, last resort. And we have to learn to get along with people of diversity on this planet. And yeah, it's going to be very challenging because some players don't want to play that game. But she really is saying, get that money back where it belongs. And she, you know, there's been big subsidies. So I know, I'm not somebody who goes into fine details of her plan or program. She has a website called Marianne 2024. She had one in 20. Very detailed of her policies exactly. But those are, you know, certainly she wants to get the money moving back into the people, the, the suffering that's going on in America. That's the, every talk she gives now. Her first thing is comes out, there are people starving. There are people who cannot pay their medical bills, people that are being, you know, in schools. We've got schools that are inadequate, there's not enough care for, and it's those young children, youth. So one of the things you're going to really hear is a real mother, I call it kind of a mother way of thinking about running a country. And it's not just mother, she's also, as I said, very well aware of American history and and you know politics she's followed it ever since she was a young teenager and she really is moving towards as she said in one of her interviews she says the reference for a real quality change what would be that reference she was asked in an interview that we would know that we're on the right track as a country in this kind of healing this transformation this change from this you know sociopathic economic system she said it would be when a lot of or the main parts of our resources go into how we raise our children. So the quality of life of our children, especially up to that age of zero to eight, and she cites various literature from psychological studies, sociological studies, and if the eight-year-olds are not, you know, we're talking all people, not just privileged people. If you're up to that age, eight, she basically says, if the evidence shows is if they don't have those securities and now places from both the home and people not having to work two jobs just to survive barely, if that, uh, et cetera, that people, those eight-year-olds, not only are going to be more productive citizens, creative citizens for the future, but they will be resistant to ideological capture. This is a phrase she's been using in her 2020 run and now in this run. One of the things that we certainly see in America, I don't know, it's certainly your perspective, Kevin, I would imagine, and and I'm not against polarization and challenge and conflict, but when that becomes sort of the modus operandi for all democratic conversation, we get to a point where we've got a lot of undermining going on. And so we're not in a very cooperative sense, and we see that obviously in, in Congress and Senate and so on. So yeah, she talks about that vulnerability of children. She says that has to be a primary concern of where resources go. I, I think that's that's a great point. But I, I wonder if she would share my view that the left and the Democrats uh, have at least as much to answer for as the right and the Republicans in terms of making life worse for children. That is that, uh, for example, when the welfare reforms were passed in around 1960, prior to that, the African-American families had been 
almost all you know married couples raising children. All children had a father, a married father, or 90% did. And then by subsidizing unwed mothers having children, uh, along with all of these other changes that came in the 60s with birth control pills and cultural revolution and so on, the black family was destroyed. And between that and shipping all the working class jobs to China, the uh, African-American community in the United States is probably a lot worse off now than it was in the 1950s before all of the desegregation and so-called liberation came along. And it seems to me that the right wing and the Republicans actually get the fact that the traditional family is an institution that you can't really replace. That is, that marriage is a way of ensuring that men who, when they are young and virile, uh, are ready to just kind of naturally have instincts to rape, pillage and take no responsibility for any offspring that they may uh, create, that marriage is a way of using kind of the sacred uh, to bring them into a productive relationship where they essentially promise to take care of a woman and any children that she may produce for the rest of her life. And that's what marriage really is. Without that, human uh, reproduction, human families, and human society just completely falls apart. And yet we have this huge push to destroy marriage and destroy the family and destroy religion coming from the left. And I think that's what's caused 95% of the suffering of children. And now the left is pushing all kinds of gender madness, you know, creating these these uh, contagious fads that convince imaginative children that they're the wrong gender and then getting them so physically mutilated with this bizarre ideology, bringing in drag queens to pollute them at an early age and so on and so forth. So, frankly, I, I think that people like Ron DeSantis, who I don't have a lot in common with in other respects, and I, I don't appreciate his uh, his anti-China warmongering and things like that. But, you know, he's representing people of common sense on that particular issue. And so somebody's running as a Democrat who wants to save the children. Well, excuse me, you, you better break with 90 percent of the Democrats if you're going to do that. Yeah. And uh, I, I think everything you said pretty much in many different ways, uh, a lot of that she would be very sensitive to. And I hear it in her different uh, challenges to what she, you know, will sometimes refer to as, you know, the the secular left, and she's not against the secular left, but she's saying it's not the only way to understand the left and the traditions of the left progressive movements in Americans' history, um, going back, you know, through hundreds of years, have often been spearheaded by religious spiritual groups, and. There's no separation between spirituality and politics, so that is definitely one of her platforms. And again, you're not—you're just not going to hear any leader that I know of in America or North America speaking of that kind of integrated thought. And she'll then even move that. And I really recommend people if they want to get a really, really good, up-to-date understanding. Her book, *The Politics of Love*, is which she published just before 2020. Um, and that was her sort of manifesto for how a politics in America would look. So it's kind of her next healing of America, you know, since her 1997 book. And so the politics of love. And of course, it, immediately and why we're talking about fear and fearlessness, even, uh, you know, sort of as a subtext for our conversation tonight, Kevin, is because she's very aware that as long as we keep operating from a fear based point of view, um, yeah, you know, that means you know you're 
not just having fear is one thing and Gavin De Bechter or others have talked about there's a good healthy fear right but it's like when fear becomes the basis for your lens on perception of reality and that will often be of a deficit reality a, a victim place um, always seeing the enemy in the other constantly, which can lead to overall a, a kind of paranoia. Some people say, well, there's a healthy paranoia. Maybe, maybe it's an arguable case, but certainly paranoia that starts to move to the, the pathological side. And so the, she's basically saying this politics of love is immoral, and she, she likes to draw on Martin Luther King and on Gandhi and, and other some uh, American presidents who have said the job of the president is moral direction. I think she's citing FDR there. You could correct me. I'm not an American historian, and uh, she she will use that. And she because people say, well, you don't, you know, what do you understand about politics? You haven't run for president. She's saying that is not that job of the president. It is um, to keep a moral direction, and to listen to people and create dialogue and as much unification as possible. Let voices be heard and so on. But she says, yeah, I'll, I'll surround myself with all the experts and the people who are the mechanics of politics, and we'll, we'll do the jobs we need to do. But she's basically trying to say, I'm, I'm not going to let, you know, this, you know, I'm not allowed to be run for president uh, kind of rhetoric, which is very common in the media. She's getting a lot of those put downs very quickly. Smear campaigns. Uh, you'll anybody if you look on the internet, you'll see those starting. And then this year was really different, Kevin, uh, because in 2020 when I followed it, I'm really noticing the left, the young left, the 20s, 30s young left who now have many podcasts <laughs> and have their own independent media, you know, channels. They are really on supporting her, and there's a lot that are criticizing her, and then they're criticizing each other now. So you got. Well, now, finally, the, the so sort of, about yeah, I think it is the secular left, you know, challenging those that that hardcore sort of materialist approach, and challenging the others, and and it's just like I've never seen such a good dialogue going on amongst the youth. Like they really care, and I and somebody said in one of the interviews, why is this all going on? You know, they're so active, and they said, well, it's kind of like what happens now? We don't have Bernie. Right, like yeah. a lot of disillusionment well, like, in that. Young she's in a, in a way she she's kind of taking the Bernie approach to the next level. You know, Bernie That's had exactly. the pol really good policy proposals, or many of them. I wouldn't yes. agree with all of them, but but good policy proposals and and basic um, basic morals. I mean, you know that he's he means what he says. He's basically honest. Yes. And so she's yeah. taking it one more level to not only do you know that she's basically honest, but she actually recognizes kind of the importance of, of the spiritual, which I don't think yeah. Bernie was quite there with. So, no, yeah, I, I, no, no. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so I'm sure the young people so, that should be very uh, uh, stimulating and, and inspiring for them. And and they're actually in some of the podcasts I was watching on, they, they're actually doing little teach ins for each other on studying Miriam Williamson's texts and her books. And and so there's a difference between listening to her speeches, but if you really want to dig in, you really want to dig into her writing too. So that's just something that I think is really important. Okay. I know you wanted to also talk about Robert J. F. Kennedy. If you yeah, I wanted, I wanted I to mention you that. wanted to spin. Well, we only have about 30 seconds left here, so I'll just mention that I, I right. wrote in I wrote him in. I wrote in RFK Jr. for president for 2020, and there is okay. now an effort to draft him for 2024. 
And again, maybe, you know, he and Marianne Williamson would be a wonderful ticket. Uh, I, I thought yeah. it was a strong symbolic vote to cast because RFK Jr., of course, on the record about the uh, assassinated U.S. government assassinations and perhaps aided by Israel. Yeah. He didn't say that uh, of his father and uncle. And uh-huh. he was a hero during the covid period. And he's apparently he's very bright and uh, and pretty fearless. If he runs for president, he's completely fearless, <laughs> given yeah. his background. So anyway, he's a, he's another uh, kind of hopeful candidate. You know, if Marianne Williamson or RFK Jr. were likely to get elected in 2024, I wouldn't be in such a hurry to leave the United States. Frankly, um, <laughs> I'll come back for their inauguration if they win. Uh, at this point, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm moving to Morocco. I've had enough. But uh, Morocco, still, I understand. Okay. Yeah. But if, if any of these people are on the ballot, you know, people like that, I'll yeah. certainly cast my write-in vote. Well, you know, I guess we hit the end of the hour. So thank you, Michael Fisher. I appreciate your very interesting discussion of Marianne Williamson, somebody I, I really respect. Okay. I'd love to have her back on the show sometime. And, and you, too, okay, of course. Then. All the best, Kevin. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks, Michael. Bye. That's Michael Fisher, the Fearlessness Studies Guide, uh, author of a long list of fearlessness-related books. I'm Kevin Barrett. This is Truth Jihad Radio, truthjihad.com, and kevinbarrett.substack.com. Back here on Revolution.radio, the greatest of uh, book responsibility. Network. Yeah.